Hi, welcome to Trust the Process, a podcast where we interview ops leaders at the world's leading companies and hear their stories as well as best practices that help these companies become world-class. I am Derek Lee, one of the co-founders of Macro, a tool that helps companies design and deploy their operational processes. On today's show, we have Julia DeWall, who is now an angel investor and was previously one of the earliest employees at Opendoor where she helped scale many of the operational processes and help it become the company it is today. Thanks for the time, Julia. We're excited to have you. Just to kick things off, who is Julia? What is your story? Oh, it's a great question to get started with, a big one. Growing up, I was a kid who liked a lot of things, and I think that has stayed true to me to this day. So I was into sports, I was into music. When I got to college, I decided to become a history major. And for me, that was, it felt like something foundational to just understanding the world. So studied history, but also, again, took a breadth of classes. And when I left college, I actually lived in India for a year oh. and worked on a couple startup ideas, did a little bit of my own like documentary filmmaking, and just wanted to explore the world a bit. And after coming home from that, I was like, okay, let me get a real job and let me do something that also feels like it has some of that breath to it. And I joined Bain to consult. It has that both like qualitative and quantitative element. And I thought it would be just good prep for anything I wanted to do later on. I wasn't quite sure, you know, what I wanted to do yet. And that was great training. I lived in Boston for a little bit, started in the headquarters there. But looking around, I noticed that a lot of the most interesting and ambitious people I knew were moving out to the Bay Area to work in startups. And I said, that that looks really interesting to me. Let me get myself out there, transferred with Bain to San Francisco. And within six months, I was gone. That was in 2014. I first heard about Open Door, um, joined there and worked there for four and a half years. I'm, I'm super excited to talk about operations at Open Door today. And since leaving about a year ago, I've been angel investing and, and working on a little project of my own. But I think overall, I, I'm one of those people just enjoys a breadth of things and a bit of a renaissance person. I aspire to be someone who is, who has a bit of breadth across different areas, who's constantly learning. That's awesome. So is being a a sous chef at uh, Alcorn Ranch part of that experience? (laughs) Yeah, actually, that that was a good time. I I moved out to Montana for a couple months before working at Bain after India. Oh, wow. And I... Yeah, for me, it was like I, Montana was a beautiful place. I like to cook and I wanted to get some more actual real world experience cooking. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful time. I lived with a whole bunch of other young people. It was in the middle of a beautiful kind of national forest area. I horseback rode a bunch of my days off and it was a good, it was a good chapter. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for the context. So you are very well known in the Valley for being amazing at operations and scaling companies, as well as being an angel investor. And so what, in your opinion, like what does operations mean? Because this word gets thrown a lot in Silicon Valley and no one really has a definitive answer to what operations means. Yeah, it can mean a lot of different things depending on what type of company you're working at. I think that's one of the reasons why it is a little bit of a nebulous term. I think of it as anything that is keeping the business running is operations. And ideally, you're doing that efficiently. You're doing that um, consistently with high quality. And so I think that's what it, um, goes into you know, doing operations at a startup. 
how do you think operations is different in the various different types of organizations? Open door is probably very different than Salesforce in terms of operations, right? Yeah, absolutely. At Open Door, uh, operations was really critical to the business because we truly were buying and selling homes, which are you know physical assets. And so operations is a big part of the business. We had customer ops, so sales and support that was talking directly with customers. We had kind of transaction operations, so all of the paperwork and kind of brokerages, title work that needs to get done when people are transacting in real estate. Um, we had a field operations team that was the people on the ground who were actually taking care of repairs and signage at our homes. Uh, and then we had pricing operations where we had a team of people who would actually take a closer look on some of the qualitative elements of homes to supplement the algorithms we were using to price homes. So there were multiple operational teams at Opendoor, but that is, that's not true of every sort of company in the Valley. You have software companies that are primarily a software product online that doesn't require anything really happening in the real world. There's no sign that needs to be put up in front of the house. And so in that context, operations usually means what are the supporting behind the scenes, things that need to get done to keep the, keep the business going. So it usually things that are not product design and engineering. Is one of the reasons why you joined Opendoor because it was much more in the real world and quote unquote ops heavy? Actually, how did you come to join Opendoor? How did you find, about, find out about this company? You joined, I think, three months into incorporation, right? Yeah, yeah. I, no, I didn't join to explicitly work in operations. I heard about the company via TechCrunch. I read a piece about their first round of funding in the summer of 2014. I knew I wanted to leave Bain for a startup. And so I was just looking around for what early stage companies were working on, uh, what I thought were interesting things. And when I saw this, I just thought there was really something here. I thought this could be a really huge business and no one had really innovated in real estate beyond Zillow, which had started a decade earlier. Uh, it's a huge market. It looked like a great team. There were some great investors on board. And so I, in that way, I, I stumbled into it. Uh, I definitely knew that I wasn't going to be on the technical side of things. So I was going to be roughly in that sort of generalist, ops generalist skill set type of role. And it just so happened that ops at Opendoor ended up being actually quite operationally intensive. Yeah. Was that the expectation from the start that when you first joined, it was going to be obviously ops intensive because you were buying and selling homes, but was it even harder and more ops heavy than people assumed? It was actually. I think people, many people, Eric included the CEO of Opendoor, had worked at primarily software companies and, and in tech and in the Valley and had not had limited experience with actual real world repairing homes, putting up signs, things like that. So operations was almost a bigger part than we anticipated, I think, at the very beginning. But we ended up putting together a really phenomenal ops team. And I think it, it, we leaned into that being a core competency of our business. And even as we've seen a couple of people get into the space, Zillow included launching their offering, I do think we are still the best at operations. And that's been really important to both delivering a great customer experience, but also remaining competitive. Yeah, totally. It sounds like that's a huge competitive mode to be able to know the ins and outs of that business and to be operationally superior than some, other, some of the other competitors out there. Totally. And I think that when you can combine operations teams with that technology mindset, you figure out ways to leverage tools, to build systems, 
to to find a way to bring technology to to make for a more scalable, more efficient system and not just rely on kind of people running around. And so I think that's what operation operations at Open North was, was quite good at. Interesting. What were some of these technologies and how do they come in throughout your experience at Open Door? Because I'm assuming on day one, a lot of the technologies were not either built out or fully scoped out. And so what were these technologies that you were using as the company scaled? And uh, yeah, like what, how'd you find them? Sure. A lot of what we take for granted, I think, our day-to-day life in terms of even things like Google Docs, using a spreadsheet, something like Asana, we all know about Asana, uh, was actually not something necessarily that the, the real estate professionals were necessarily using. And so even just a suite of off-the-shelf, really basic productivity tools were what we used early on. So we built out a first template for you know, how to buy a house in Asana with a checklist. And we said, okay, here's what you need to do every time. Let's, go, let's write that out. Or same thing with spreadsheets. We communicated in Slack. We collaborated in Docs. And we, we used that to start. And then as we scaled, we did start out to build, we did build our own internal tools. And so that ended up, we did eventually bring in an engineering team, eventually a product manager there. And we said, okay, let's deeply think about this system we're creating, talking to a customer, inspecting their house, purchasing that house, repairing that house, putting it back on the market and building something that we could really leverage across multiple markets, across dozens of homes a day. Uh, and this, that really did become a quite technology-driven endeavor. Interesting. What were some of the, the advantages as well as disadvantages as Endora moved away from more of the off-the-shelf tools and more into internal tools? Oh, it's a painful transition. <laughs> and when you go and you say, hey, uh, team of engineers, we'd love your help in helping us build some systems here for our operations. There is a lot of of communication that needs to happen in terms of trying to get these two sort of disparate worlds together to say, okay, we understand the problem here and we understand what we might need to go build. And so that just is a communication process. We did a lot of kind of flow chart building. We, and I think I learned the mindset of, okay, what are the like bite-sized chunks of pieces? We use Pivotal Tracker, right? What are, what are the pieces we needed to get done this week to start to like build towards a tool that we could use? Often they were looked a lot like checklists, like smart checklists that would use some of the, the data or the, the names of roles that we had put in our database so that we knew that a particular role could take on A, B, and C task once this other dependency happened. So we built that out together. And what's difficult though is you, once you put something in code like that, and then it's like the engineering team is great, we finished that. You're, oh, actually we need to do things a little bit differently. Processes evolve, you learn about edge cases, you want to change protocol once you have realized that something isn't working that well. And so things get a little bit, can get outdated rather quickly. And so that was actually one of the, the challenging parts about working with the engineering team is, is knowing when to engage them, when you felt like the processes had settled down a little bit and you were actually ready to, to, put, to, to build something now that probably wasn't going to change for a little while. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so it sounds like processes are oftentimes ever-changing, especially probably, let's go back to the very early days of Open Door, right? So September of 2014. It sounds like you eventually there was this checklist on how to buy a house, how to close a house, how to go through that financing process. But on day one, how did the team come about to these processes? Because I'm assuming it was just like, we have an idea that we want to buy a house and sell a house. And then everything else was piecing together a process 
to help the company scale, but that process didn't really exist day one. Yeah, there was a lot of asking questions. So I went out to kind of people who worked in real estate to, we knew we needed a title agency to work with and our um, title agent there, her name is Kirsten, was just such a godsend to me. I asked her so many questions about what were all the pieces that needed to get done and for us to buy a house. Uh, and then it was just keeping a working draft of what was that checklist. And if we realized we had missed something or if we wanted to do something differently than we had previously, we would just be editing that. And so having a live working doc that was easily editable as we went was really important. And that's why having some of those flexible tools early on was critical. And was this doc shared across the entire organization? Well, the organization was very small then. We were probably two or three ops people. Imagine keeping it in a Google spreadsheet. It was pretty easy. Everyone could see it. People could edit it. And yeah, the team stayed quite small for the first year of Open Door. Each one of us, probably four people on the ops team by six to nine months in, we each kind of just took an area of the business and operated it ourselves. So I was working in customer ops. I was the one picking up the phone, talking to our first customers. And, and that's how I was able to really understand what was coming up for customers, what should be in our playbook, uh, where we should tweak our process. And then once it did come to the point where we needed more people on board in order to handle the volume we were getting, as I hired in people, I could point to this playbook that was work in progress, help train people towards a kind of a unified standard of how we wanted to handle certain situations. And how did you figure out at what point it was okay to start scaling? At what point you had this playbook, let's say 50% of the way figured out and yeah. pay to start hiring people so that they too can be a part of this process and help scale out even more. I give Eric and the founders a lot of credit. They were kind of like, we are going big here. Everyone like strap in. There's no, are you ready for this? Cause it's happening. As soon as we felt like we had some product market fit, we'd run this through with several customers. It felt like people were excited about what we were bringing to the market. Then it was like, great, let's lean into this. Let's start um, sending out direct mail. Let's play around with some Facebook ads. And we really started getting that inbound interest. And so then it was just like, handle that volume yourself while simultaneously building out the process, getting your job descriptions written, starting to do interviews. So it was a lot of that, like doing everything at the same time. It's the whole building the plane while you fly it type of metaphor. Interesting. So your first big role at Open Door. They're all big, but the first big one was the head of seller experience, right? Yeah. What were the playbooks that you ultimately came up with for, I mean, first off, what is the role? And then second off, what are the processes for that role? Sure. So I was responsible for the experience that a home seller would have selling their home to open door. Mm -hmm. And that included every customer touch point along the way. Initially, customers would land on our offer page. They would answer some questions about their home. Then they would request an offer from us. Then they would receive that offer. And that's where this, the team I was managing, the customer experience team, was responsible for being on point to help walk them through the offer, help customers understand what Open Door did. And then if they did want to move forward with the offer, coordinating the inspection that would happen at their house. So that was an in-person experience. Then getting their inspection results back. And then if they decided they did want to move towards close, um, working with a title company, figuring out the close date, the wire instructions, all of that to finalize the purchase. And so that was the sort of scope of it. And there was, there was both that, the kind of sales element to let's convert people who, are, who, who like their offer to working with us, not going and getting a realtor. 
Uh, and then there was a more transaction management piece of let's make sure we have a smooth inspection process. Let's make sure um, everything goes smoothly with all the paperwork they need to sign and all that. So the, the KPIs there were essentially time to close as well as just the conversion rates. The second one, absolutely. I think conversion is one of those really critical metrics early on in a company because you want to understand, are, do people want this product? Are they willing to pay for it? We saw really high conversion early on, which was a really strong signal that we'd had some kind of product market fit. The other one you said is time to close. We actually want to allow the, that to be totally in the hands of the customer. It was one of the big value props of the open door product that you as the customer can choose when you want to close. We don't care if it's in three days or 60 days. You choose, and we will let you line it up with uh, your next home purchase. And that was so important to people because out there in the real world with a realtor and whoever else was buying their house, they were not necessarily in control of that close date. Interesting. What happened when uh, when corner cases popped up? To, Which to corner oh, corner cases. cases. Oh, man. There were all sorts of them. I think there's always a tension between trying to give that individual customer with their individual situation, the attention that they want and make them feel like we've got their back, even though they have a weird situation coming up. But at the same time, you can't be at the mercy of all of these different types of edge cases. So we would have people, I had someone who wanted to sell their car with their homes. No, I'm sorry, we're not buying cars. And so I, you have to rein it in a little bit. But when edge cases were coming up and there was a little bit of a pattern of them, we would say, okay, interesting. Let, let's process that and figure out how to maybe proactively give customers information that they were that they'd been asking about previously or work them into the process in some way. Interesting. And so you were in that role for about a year and a half. And then you, your next role at Open Door was being the GM of Phoenix. And I think Phoenix was the first market for Open Door. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's funny you... It, it sounds almost like it was so organized that there was one role and then the next one, but the reality is, is so much muddier, right? You're like working on a bunch of different things. You can mostly work on seller experience and then it's, Hey, we have seven employees down in Phoenix. We really should get someone down there to oversee the whole thing. And we're rapidly scaling. Hey, Julia, could you move down to Phoenix for a bit? Okay, great. Let's actually establish this general manager role. What is that role? What do we want it to be? It's always a bit more chaotic than it seems. I think when you you know look at someone's LinkedIn profile, for example, but the GM role was great. That's when we first basically had a bit of a matrix going on. I think you'll see this in a lot of organizations where you'll have functional roles and then you'll have maybe market or geography-based roles. And the two leaders there, let's say of a pricing team and the Phoenix GM need to work together on, on pricing policy, for example. Same thing goes for, I'd been leading the customer experience team for a bit. Now I was down in Phoenix focused on Phoenix with another head of the function of customer experience. So we needed to work together. Uh, and in the very early days, we actually, when you say, who, who does the tie go to, if, you, if there's really a disagreement, we had to go to the functional lead in the beginning because we said these functions still are really early in their development. We want to make sure that it's not just the Phoenix GM who's having the final say over everything when these functions still need to be evolving. But later on with Open Door, we actually ended up switching that where the, the, the GM actually had a bit more control because the processes in each of those functions for, were a lot more set. How are the different function has as well as GMs communicating in terms of day-to-day -day and communicating the information from the field back to HQ? Um, yeah. so function has can take that into account for the overall process that they have in their minds and whatnot. Yeah, since there is so much going on, 
in early days and scaling. A couple of things I think are really important to nail down to just give some structure to the whole thing. Yeah. One is having a great set of dashboards. So having a really dialed in set of what are the most important metrics we're looking at. And then complementary with that is what we would call red flag reports. So if something was going off with one of those homes or customers, we would have some way of getting an indicator of that. For example, if you had a home sitting on the market for a long period of time, in the very beginning, there was, there was actually a home that we forgot about for a while. It like never got listed, like literally the signs never went up and we didn't have a good way of a, a good process or, or flag for, hey, this house has been sitting there and hasn't been listed yet. So getting a lot of those dashboards and, and those red flag reports set up was really critical. And then second is establishing a cadence for meeting and reviewing these metrics together and saying, how's this one doing? This one isn't doing well. What's the root cause here? Let's have a kind of five whys discussion, dig in on the why, get to those root causes, talk about solutions and have a bit of a brainstorm around that. So th those two things were really important to us early on. And in, in terms of these red flag reports and also the dashboard, right? I think so much of it probably depended on the folks in Phoenix being communicative and writing down what has happened in the market and communicating that into the, the overall company database. And so I think for a lot of organizations, there might be processes, but there's not really good cadence for tracking or for recording what's happening. It sounds like Open Door was very much the opposite where everything got recorded, everything went into a dashboard, everything was very communicated across the organization. Yeah, I guess so. No, we, I think we did do a good job of trying to say, hey, what are our top line metrics? Let's get these dashboards set up. But there is still stuff that comes up that's quite qualitative and is experienced firsthand by those frontline operators. And there needs to be open lines of communication between those people and kind of people at HQ that are working uh, in data science or in management roles or something else. An interesting example of this with Open Door is floor layouts and kind of floor plans of homes. So we, we noticed there were some homes that were just sitting on the market, not selling, costing open door money. And we also simultaneously had been hearing from the field ops team, gosh, there's some homes with like really weird layouts, like really bizarre floor plans. I feel like these things would sit on the market a long time if they were listed on the market with a realtor. And it was like, hmm, let's connect those two things. Turns out we had acquired a few homes with like bizarre, terrible floor plans and they were sitting on the market and we had no way of knowing that wasn't in our algorithms, that wasn't in our process in any way. And insights were actually really important to, to take from the people who are on the front lines, communicate those, discuss those and make sure that there was a, a fully, like a coordinated flywheel to say it and let's incorporate that into the way we run our pricing algorithms or other pieces of our process. How would the frontline employees communicating these, these nuances and what they're observing in the field back into the overall system? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a, a big responsibility of a GM is to actually be in the weeds constantly with the various teams. It's also the, whoever is the team leader, the team manager there, uh, I think it needs to be responsible for cultivating that type of communication, asking those types of questions. We often, when I was running a team meeting with the customer experience team, for example, I, I wanted to have just an open-ended, what's coming up, what's worrying you, what problems are you seeing, and then listening and saying, huh, that seems like a trend. Oh, someone else is seeing the same thing. Oh, someone else is seeing the same thing. There's a discussion. And then it's on that team manager or that GM to say, 
wow, this seems like something that I need to go raise with an entirely different team. For example, this, the pricing team back in San Francisco, data science, they're not talking to the frontline operators very frequently. So it's my responsibility to, to bring these two people together, bring these two groups together, since it seems like there's an issue here and we could, with two heads together, come out with a better solution than either one alone. Were there any questions that, that you kept on asking to the frontline operators while you're in Phoenix? Keeping them open-ended is, I think, really the best way to do it, to say, again, what, what's coming up? What's concerning to you? Uh, what's working well? What's not working well? And, and then, you know, you might be surprised what you hear. There's sometimes you have your own blind spots. Unless you're doing that role every day, you're probably missing something. And so I think those open-ended questions are really the best. What was the most bizarre, I guess, again, going back to edge cases, just in terms of story sharing, what, what was the most bizarre edge case for Phoenix? that you came across? Oh gosh, there was the person who tried to sell their car to me <laughs> who got angry actually that my offer to them did, was not taking into account their car and they were insulted <laughs> by how low the offer was. <laughs> what kind of a car was it? <laughs> um, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Sadly, there was also things like, oh, it was like a, one of these like big SUVs, like a t- Chevy Tahoe or something, like big uh, black SUVs. They were, there's sadly some things like ugh, a math den we came across you get some edge cases too when people are like, ooh, sell online. I don't have to have anyone see my home. Actually, we are going to come inspect your home. And this is a kind of a problematic house for us. All sorts of bizarre things would come up like that. Interesting. Knowing everything now about scaling and processes and operations, what pitfalls did you make while you were the GM of Phoenix that you would avoid now? Yeah, I think we underestimated in training. I'm sorry, under-invested in training. Mm. We, when you're moving quickly, you're hiring people quickly. Give them a day of training. Hey, look at these tools. Uh, Here's how we do things. Go shadow this person. Okay, you're off to the races. In some ways, it's not enough to really allow that person to build the intuition and really deeply understand why you have created this set of protocols. As an example here, we had a team, uh, team, team of field operators that would do estimations on what repairs are required in the home. And as you can imagine, that is subject to all sorts of subjective perspectives on whether or not you should replace carpet if there's a hole in the carpet. And so we really tried to dial that in to the point where I remember one of our um, guidelines was if the hole in the carpet is bigger than the size of a quarter, we'll replace the carpet. And so we had to just dial that like the quarter thing into everyone's head. And and obviously it was in the playbook as well, but be really clear so that we knew we were delivering on uh, consistency every time with every single home. And so I think a pitfall to avoid is, is under investing in training. It sounds like even while there were folks were training, there was a playbook that they were executing against and probably over time, just because of human intuition, human nature, people probably did not check on that playbook as often. And sometimes after maybe a week or a month, people just executed against what's in their mind. And so whenever this playbook changed, how are they being able to communicate to the field team that like, hey, now instead of being a quarter, it's actually two quarters or- Yeah, yeah. No, it's a fantastic question. So again, this goes back to one of the, the critical parts to, I think, managing an operations team well is having a very purposeful and well-run weekly team meeting. And a couple things need to come up in that meeting. One is any changes to protocol or any changes 
um, such as, hey, the product team is launching this new landing page. It says these new different things. So we should think we need to talk through how we're going to change talking to our customers. So one's coming from the product team. And then uh, second to that is doing and uh, spending some time as a team actually going through the day-to-day uh, -day process. And so an example of this is with our field ops team for a very long time, we would spend part of that team meeting actually picking a house, going into the uh, inspection report and together as a team saying, okay, here's the carpet, here's the hole. What are we going to do about this one? And collectively doing the process together. And it sounds so like rudimentary or elementary to do that, but you, it's actually almost a way to keep training people, right? It's like continuing education on what are our protocols. And then you do realize that as a group, if something comes up where it's, huh, we don't really have a good protocol for that or a process for that, or we don't, it doesn't feel like this process is really working for us. You have the team there and you can all discuss, you can get multiple perspectives on it. And right then and there, you can say, hey, we're going to update our, our protocol here. We're going to change it to the two quarters or whatever it is. So that's actually, that was a sort of an underestimated, I think, technique or, or, pro or process to go through with a team meeting. When you first joined Phoenix, that, that Phoenix market, it sounds like the team was a size of seven, right? How did it change throughout that year? Where did it end up and what, how did the roles change? And also in connection with meetings, how did the meeting setups change? Because I'm assuming the team increased in size. And so there might've been more chances for communication gaps. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I did when I was down in Phoenix as the GM is actually set up a Phoenix only all hands. And as we grew, we got up to about 65 people during the time I was there, uh, we had now sub teams there. So it wasn't just everyone kind of individual contributors, flat org, you had now managers of managers within a Phoenix team. And people want to feel connected to uh, the, the higher purpose here. What's Open Door's mission? And how are we doing as a Phoenix team? And what's going on the pricing team if I'm on the field ops team and vice versa? And just getting to know each other. That's definitely one of the transitions that the Phoenix team made. It's also the transition that the Open Door team made over and over again. You go from 25 to 50, that feels different. From 50 to 200, that feels really different. From 200 to 700, that feels really different. You constantly are reevaluating, hey, are our meetings working? Are our communication methods working? There's prob they're probably actually not working by definition if you go from 50 to 200. Mm -hmm. So what, what do we need to do differently? Can we go look to some other companies for examples of what to do better at a larger scale? And so there was a lot of, of looking around too and saying, what else should we be trying? Interesting. What were some of those companies that you found admirable that you could learn things from? You know, a lot of it was Eric, our CEO, was, was ultimately responsible for how do we scale communications out. And we looked to places like, what was Airbnb doing? People, people adore that company. The employees really adore that company. Their CEO is such a fantastic storyteller. So what were they doing at their all hands? And so we would we'd figure out, hey, tell us about how you run your, your all hands programming or your onboarding program, your week-long new hires onboarding process. So we would just go around and ask different companies about how they were, they were doing things. From a cultural perspective, it's hard to keep culture cohesive if you have an HQ going from 50 to 200 people. I'm assuming that the, the cultural being cohesive becomes much harder when not only is there an HQ that's growing at that scale, but also all these different local field operations that are also growing at their own massive rates. And so how did you think about keeping culture cohesive, like on the open door culture 
while still having these local teams that has been removed sometimes from HQ? Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging one. One of the things I think we may have underestimated in a little bit, but when we did do it, it was powerful, is getting managers together to say, hey, how are you doing your team meetings? How are you incorporating cultural values? And getting managers aligned because they're ultimately bringing that out to their teams as well. Uh, and then second to that is Eric really tried to have our cultural values show up in our all hands. The language around what those were, for example, openness was one of our cultural values. So how can we show where employees were being open, where we were being open with customers? So I think just trying to make sure that was top of mind and being discussed was part of our hiring process, was part of our onboarding process, uh, and was part of uh, performance reviews actually later on as we got a little more organized. Are there any tidbits that you can share from the all hands? I mean, it sounds like there was a very specific structure to them, and it sounds like that was actually very core to open door scaling. Are, are there any? Yeah, it was, yeah, absolutely. We did all hands uh, every other week, usually on a Friday, either right before lunch or after lunch. And it was a really, it was a time to get the company together, to check in, to have a little bit of that like team feeling. And we'd start off, we'd, we always play music to pump everyone up. We would, we would have, have an in-person gathering. It's like, wow, to think about that during COVID right now, but like everyone together packed into one room, usually the cafeteria. And then we would do things like review our metrics and say, hey, we hit our growth goals for the month, or we are, our NPS goal is actually suffering. We did a root cause analysis. Here's what's going on. So a lot of that like real talk about the numbers. And then we would usually have a few product demos. So, hey, this new feature shipped or this, here's this new, actually, we really tried to focus on operational stuff too. Hey, here's a new operational process uh, and here's how it works. And data science is, is, has made progress in their pricing algorithm and here's, here's the result of it. And getting people exposure to what was happening on other teams and also celebrating things that had shipped, new stuff that was coming out. And then finally, we made sure that we had a customer story involved in every all hands. And I love that because if you're not on the customer experience team, you're probably very rarely talking to or even listening into uh, a customer conversation. And so that was always fun. We would share a lot of funny or positive ones, but also some, hey, we messed up here, or this was a tough one. And here's what we need to, here's what the company should know about how uh, the experience is going when someone is working with Open Door. Yeah, keeping the customer top of mind is definitely key. And yeah. I think having that on all hands. The role after being the GM of Phoenix, you were the chief of staff to the CEO at Opendoor. How did that role come about? Was it also, as you mentioned earlier, non-organic or was it more of a organic transition? Yeah, we were about probably almost 200 people when Eric, our CEO, came over to me and said, hey, I got a lot on my plate. There's a lot going on and we, we're going to be quadrupling the company in the next year. I would love for you to come on as my chief of staff and I would like to work on all of our internal operations. So things like let's get a new hire onboarding week set up. Let's actually get an all hands program we're happy with. Let's figure out how to hire an executive team. So all of that type of stuff. And it just was the need of the company at the time. And so I, I joined in that role and worked on a lot of those internal ops projects and just standing up a lot of what I think would allow the company to scale to that like much bigger, bigger size, uh, a lot of communications work there. And also there were some gaps on the executive team at that time. 
gaps in communications, gaps in our head of people. We were just bringing on a COO. Uh, and since I knew so much about city operations, I worked a lot with him to get him onboarded and set up for success there. And then I also started working on small projects here and there that ultimately led me to help with the acquisition of open listings, which was another company in the space that was actually more focused on the online buying experience where Opendoor was really excelling in that online selling experience. So they're very complementary. And then working on that, working on that acquisition and then thinking about what uh, product would be useful for customers who wanted to do both sell with Opendoor and buy with open listings, which became our trade-in product was then a natural transition into me focusing on uh, the trade-in product, building that and growing that over the last year that I was at Opendoor. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the different ops processes that you were a part of being the chief of staff was different from Phoenix as well as the seller experience initially because they were, I guess, they were much more broad being the chief of staff. And also it sounds like some of them are much more internal facing versus external facing. Absolutely. The, the chief of staff role for me at least was uh, very focused on the internal ops, basically setting up the company itself for success the employees. We did things like set up a culture amp survey, uh, you know, pulse check on the company engagement score. We were, I worked a lot on having a single source of truth on metrics. Believe it or not, there was like some people setting up their own metrics over here on pricing and then some other people looking at some other dashboard. It was like, no, we need a single source of truth. So just just doing some of those cross-functional initiatives, getting performance reviews up and running, uh, a lot of those internal operations pieces. Interesting. Are there any big learning that you can share with everyone in terms of, you know, what it was like being a chief of staff and how that role, how that role was? Yeah, it's different at every company. Yeah. And I have I've talked to a lot of people about the chief of staff role. And I think the most important thing to make sure one would do when entering into this role is be really clear about the scope of the role. And it's easy for it to just be a generic supporting role and not like a just driven, get things done, like move through projects type of role. And so what Eric and I set up was a kind of a 30, 60, 90 day when I planned, when I joined and we said, okay, within 30 days, we're going to have, Eric's going to have a weekly email set up where he sends it out uh, once a week with his personal thoughts. And it's going to have our source of truth metrics at the top by 60 days. We're going to have an all hands program that's running every two weeks. And we're going to productize it and, and build the checklist for what needs to go into one of those. By 90 days, we're going to have culture and survey. Like we really tried to make it an impactful role. And uh, that said, I, I really missed operating when I was a chief of staff. I, I couldn't wait to get back to it. If I were to only have done one of the two, I, I would absolutely choose being in an operating role. I think there's just no experience like it in terms of learning how to build a business, to, to sell to customers. That was a big part of customer experience. And yeah, it was just like very hands-on. So that's why you eventually decided to become the dream of the trade-in trade-ins program. It sounds like you, you discovered that process or that that line of business, if you will, while being chief of staff and you decided to to help scale on that team. Yeah, exactly. Although once again, it's, it was Eric saying, Hey, I think you'd be great to go run this program. You want to go do that? And I said, absolutely. There's a lot of, what is the what is the most impactful thing I can be doing for the company? Um, where is their need? And I think oftentimes in fast growing startups, it's just, hey, we need someone over here. We need someone over there. And you just go do it. Interesting. 
And how, how did you think about early on, uh, Open Door is still only a six-year-old company, which is crazy to think about because it's grown so fast. But early on, right, I think there is this trade-off between focusing in on one or two core products, but also seeing what's adjacent. So how did Open Door make that, I guess, that trade-off between, okay, our core is buying and selling, but also trade-ins is super interesting. So we should also develop some resources there as well. It's a great question. Early on, we found that we really had product market fit for an online selling experience. And we said, great, let's run with that. And so that was the North Star for the first two, three years is we really just focused on that. We did build out our buying experiences because naturally there were two sides of that equation, right? We, when we acquired a home, we needed to also resell it. Um, but we knew that we had this like lightning in a bottle seller experience to offer. And to this day, that is, that's what we think of as the core product of Opendoor. There is a, there's a broader ecosystem there of, of, again, the buyer product, the trade-in product. Um, we now do mortgages. And there's even a few adjacent services, you might call it, that you can layer in to someone's real estate transaction. But I think if you have something great, focus on that, double down on it, bring it to as many people as possible. And that's mostly the strategy that we deployed at Opendoor. It sounds like the the selling experience was is still core to open door and all these other adjacencies are basically supporting and just growing that core selling experience. Like now that we, now that someone sold our, their house to us, we have to do something with it. And so all these other products emerge out of that. So yeah, to some degree, that's true. I think the seller experience is just like even more different than uh, a typical selling experience than our buyer experiences. And so it just really shines as our, it's what, it's what Opendoor is really known for more than I think our other products. What was unique about the, uh, the trade-ins, I guess, being the leader of that organization versus the prior three experiences? It was a very different, it's very different to set up a new product once a company is bigger, more established, the other products are much more mature. So there was a lot of cross-functional work to be done of making sure First of all, validating that people wanted this concept. The thinking here was that when someone is selling a house, they're very often also buying a house. So they're doing these two things anyway. And so why not bring that together into one seamless experience and help people line up those two closed dates, make sure that they don't have to be in a hotel in between or something like that. Wanted to first make sure that was going to be a winning product uh, and then go out there and talk with the seller team, talk with the buyer team, uh, talk with the mortgages team and say, how can we um, bring this bring this as a, an option for anyone who you discover is not just selling, if you're on the seller team, but also buying? And how do you introduce them to the trade-in product so that it's not it doesn't feel like it's cannibalizing the seller team's work, but actually is leveling up that customer's experience? It's a tricky line to walk. There was a lot of zero to one, which I thought was fun. I really enjoy that type of work where if you go over to the seller and the buyer team, there was a lot more optimizing or later product work going on where, again, with trade-ins, it was like we not, nothing had been done here before. So it, it was building it from scratch in that sense. It sounds like you're really into creating processes from scratch, right? Going from zero to one. For all the listeners out there in terms of, I'm sure lots of people come to you for career advice. From a career advice perspective, how how would you say someone, like what type of personality do you think stripes really well in terms of figuring out new processes versus helping scale out existing processes? 
going zero to one is often chaotic. And so people who can, people who are excited about and can handle that uncertainty and the uh, lack of structure, I think are very well suited to work early stage. If you're someone who likes having things a little more organized and then going in and optimizing things or making improvements to things, then you're probably better suited to a later stage environment. And then how, what general career advice would you have for someone who's interested in a career in operations? Yeah, I would say don't be afraid to hop in any role you can get your hands on, whether it's customer experience, uh, whether it's more of a traditional like field operations type role and get in there and I would say approach it with that systems mindset and say, okay, what needs to get done here? How can I leverage technology? How can I build a repeatable process? How can I write down the script of what I'm saying to people repeatedly? And by doing that, I think you'll A, actually be able to deliver better quality more consistently. You'll do it more efficiently. And you'll probably also become a leader in that organization um, because operational leaders need to constantly be thinking like that in order to be part of a scaling organization, in order to lead teams who everyone on that team is also delivering quality, consistent output. So I would say don't worry too much about what the role is, but go in, do it with a systems mindset. And I think you'll see great things from that. That's great advice. Yeah. To close things off, here's a fun question. Can you tell us about Bike Frontier? Absolutely. Yeah. This is a fun little side project I'm working on right now. Uh, I love to cycle and I just wasn't finding a brand that I loved in the cycling space that I felt was uh, a little more modern and not too competitive or serious. So I am starting a little cycling line, uh, apparel line called Frontier. And we are currently in the manufacturing process. So I'm getting samples back from our factory in Portugal and um, working to get that launched and live in the next few months. Awesome. And how can people find out more about that? It's bikefrontier.com. Bikefrontier.com. Cool. We'll have that on our, in our notes as well. Julia, thank you so much for the time. This has been awesome. Thank you for sharing all the learning. If people want to reach out and learn more about your experiences or with any questions, how can they do that? Yeah, find me on Twitter. It's at Julia Dewall, just my name. And Derek, this has been awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much.